Match Chat is brought to you by Walters. The weekend is upon us, and Walters is a great spot to gather for brunch from chicken and waffles to Walters breakfast tacos. Walters' menu has something for everyone. On top of that, for only $20, enjoy bottomless drinks, including mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and old-time lagers. Make your reservation at waltersdc.com today. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch. Swing and a line drive into right, a base hit. Rounding third, heading the plate is Hayes. Soto's throw is not in time. Over to third base on the play goes Reynolds. And the Pirates are back in front here at the bottom of the fifth inning. It's now Pittsburgh three and Washington two. The kick and the pitch. Swing a ground ball to third. Franco has it to second for one. Hernandez to first. Not a good throw and gets away from Bell. One run is scored. Here comes another. And the Pirates break this game wide open as Diego Castillo dives across the plate with the third run of the inning. And the pitch to Franco swung on, hit high in the air to right field. Playable for Gamble. He's there waiting and he makes the catch and the game is over. The Pirates take the third game of the series at a two to one edge in the four game series. Their three run eighth breaking the game open. Too much for the Nationals who had their chances to come back in the ninth. They come up short. And welcome to Nats Chat for Sunday, April 17th, 2022, along with MassInSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is in Pittsburgh. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. We say happy Easter to those of you celebrating Easter. We say happy Passover to those of you celebrating Passover. Unfortunately for the Nats, Saturday night was not a happy night, whatever they may have been celebrating. A 6-4 loss at the Pirates in Game 3 of a four-game series. Kyle Finnegan giving up three runs in the bottom of the eighth inning. Juan Soto did have a big game. That was good, but the Nats went just 2 of 11 with runners in scoring position, left 11 men on base. Nats now 4-6, and six, 10 games into the season. Still searching as best they can for a starting pitcher to last for more than five and a third innings in the game. Josh Rogers lasted for five and a third innings last Monday night. That remains the longest outing for a Nats starting pitcher so far this season. He on Saturday night lasted for just four and a third innings. Will we, before the end of this month, see a Nats starter last for at least six innings? I don't know. I do know this, Mark. The Nats this season now, four and oh, when their starting pitcher lasts for at least five innings. Oh and six when he does not. As we have discussed, the formula 
at least so far, appears rather obvious. Yeah, and honestly, in this one, I thought Rodgers was going to get there uh, because after a really laborious start the first couple innings, he got through the third and the fourth very quick, and he goes into the fifth inning on 64 pitches. I'm thinking he's in pretty good shape, gets a quick out, then two singles, and I think he could have kept going. He wasn't tired. He'd thrown 76 pitches. But you had the middle of the order up, some right-handed bats. It was the third time through. I think Davey Martinez felt like this isn't worth it to push this. And Josh understood that, too, why it wasn't uh, the right move for for him to stay in the game at that point. I just go back in this one. Not that he was great because, you know, certainly he could have put them in a better position. But I just go back to, like, there were so many chances for the lineup earlier in the game to do something. Like, they were down by one run most of the night. It was 3-2 most of the night. They just couldn't get that one extra hit they needed along the way that would have actually made something out of this. By the time they finally rallied in the ninth, they were down by four runs, and it just wasn't enough. The boys battled. They got the time run to the plate, but not nearly enough. This just felt like a game that you sort of expected somewhere along the way they would string together a rally. It just didn't never really happen. Yeah, I mean, the Nats are getting a decent amount of guys on base in this series. Saturday night, eight hits, six walks, so it's not like there were not ducks on the pond, as the saying goes, but... To what you just said and what I referenced with the 2-for-11 with runners in scoring position, there were definitely some missed opportunities. I mean, this was another one of these games in which Nelson Cruz didn't do as Nelson Cruz can do, 0-for-5. He left four men on base. Kbert Ruiz is in a bit of a rut here these days. He went 0-for-5, did have the RBI ground out, the RBI uh, grounder into a force out in the uh, the Nats' two-run ninth, but uh, Kbert left five men on base. In the game, we had that big spot for Cesar Hernandez in this game where he comes up with the bases loaded and he ends up grounding out. So, you know, just opportunities were there, unable to come through. But we did have Juan Soto coming through. And, you know, we've discussed how Juan was doing well, but maybe not as well as we know he can do. We know that that is coming. Well, maybe it's happening right now as we speak here because Juan Soto for a second consecutive game gets on base four times and he did something on Saturday night. That is rather special. Now the pitch, swing, and a drive to deep right on the line. Down the line in the corner, and it is gone. Goodbye. Top of the fifth, a leadoff homer on a line drive to right field to tie the game at two, despite having been down in the count at 1.12. The homer traveled 108.4 miles per hour per stat cast, and Juan Soto became just the 43rd player to homer into the Allegheny River over the 22 seasons of PNC Park, which opened in 2001. I mean, at these ballparks, you have all these sort of peculiar things that you can reach and do depending on the constructs of the park. To hit one into the Allegheny, as Soto did, and that was like a missile that he sent out of that park. That was some shot. His family has been on hand for these games, so that's been cool to see. And uh, a special moment there for Juan Soto. It was, and this one was unlike any of those previous ones that landed in the river because nobody knew it landed in the river till well after the fact because it didn't clear the stands, okay? This was by far and away the shortest home run to reach the river at 382 feet, I think. It went down the tunnel and onto the concourse underneath the right field stands and then bounced off something and then kept going and ended up in the river. So it wasn't a a splashdown, as it were. But I think people were more amazed by this one. Nobody here could remember ever seeing one like that because he had to hit it so hard and at such a low angle and like thread the needle to put it 
into the tunnel in between the two sections. It felt like a Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, old uh, horse commercial, you know, like through the tunnel, off the concourse, into the river, nothing but net. First one to miss, watches a winner eat? No dunking. How are you ever going to pull that one off? He didn't even realize it. I don't think any of the Nationals realized what had happened with it. It was only one of the cameras here in Pittsburgh that eventually panned down and showed this ball just sitting in the river. So a really bizarre way to do it, but it just sort of like adds to the Juan Soto legend. Like, of course, he would be the one not to hit the majestic 450-foot moonshot that lands on a splashdown in the river, but one that's hit so hard and so low that it somehow made it through the stadium and ended up outside of the stadium into the water. Yeah, you almost could argue that that's more impressive. I mean, that's certainly more unique. It's not something that a lot of people are able to do. Soto looked great at the plate on Saturday night. He's looked great at the plate over these last few games. He drew two walks on Saturday night, but he also had a really impressive double in that Nats two-run ninth inning, an opposite field double to left field. He was down at 1.02, gets pitched outside, basically like just throws his hands at the baseball and just pokes it into left field. I mean, that was a beautiful piece of hitting by Soto. I know it's been said many times, he's at his best when he's going the opposite way. We have seen him do that. And man, did he do that in that ninth inning with that double. And what he said afterwards, it was kind of subtle, but it was an interesting revelation from him. He said, uh, after the first you know week or so, this wasn't happening. Now, pitchers are starting to throw him outside, and he loves that because that's where he wants the ball because his natural swing is to look to drive it to the opposite field, and that's where that double came from. There aren't a lot of holes in Juan Soto's swing, but if there is one, I guess it's up and in. That's probably where he's least comfortable. You don't see a lot of pitchers come in there, but when he's struggling, sometimes they can do that to him, and he's saying they're not coming in on him at all. They're staying away, and that is playing right into his hands. That's exactly where he wants to see the ball coming out of the pitcher's hand. Josh Bell, once again, had a productive night for the Nationals. Man, is he locked in uh, as this season is getting going here. Bell on Saturday evening, one for three with an RBI single and a walk. He actually reached base in the top of the first with two outs via catcher interference. That's when you know things are going well for you, when you're getting on base in uh, a way like that, catcher interference. But Bell went the opposite way in the two-run ninth, a one-out opposite field, ribby single to left field to cut the Nats' deficit to 6-3. Alcides Escobar actually had a productive night for the Nats. Boy, has Alcides needed that. Escobar on Saturday night, 2-for-3 with an RBI double, a single, and a walk. A one-run second, he had a one-out RBI double to left for a one nothing Nats lead. Top of the fourth, threw a two-out four-pitch walk. Top of the eighth, a two-out single to left center field. That's more like it. That's the Alcides of 2021. We have not seen nearly enough of that so far this season, but maybe he's starting to come out of it a little bit here. He had the walk and the hit-by-pitch in Game 2 of the series. He did have a two-out single in Game 1 of the series. They were getting production really from the bottom of the lineup. Escobar on base three times. Lane Thomas hit a double. Franco reached base twice. Victor Robles drew a walk for the first time. And then Robles hit a ball on the screws. He had a chance with the runner on third in the sixth, and he hit probably the best ball we've seen from him this season, 105 miles an hour off the bat, right up the middle. They just happened to shade him right there, and the second baseman made the play. So, I mean, there were, offensively, they hit some balls well, and it didn't feel like that putrid of an offensive performance. They just didn't get them at quite the right times or string enough of them together. And like you've said, they really haven't hit for a lot of power outside of the Soto homer. It feels like if just one of those guys had connected on one, it might have changed the whole outcome of the game. It was a weird night because 
you know, going into the ninth, they're down 6-2, but it didn't really feel like they were being outplayed. It just kind of worked out that way. I mean, once Kyle Finnegan gave up three runs in the eighth, you kind of felt like this game was probably done. There definitely, though, was an element of bad luck for the Nats offensively on Saturday night. You mentioned the Robles liner to the Pirates' second baseman, Diego Castillo. Ben Gamble, the Pirates' right fielder, had multiple impressive plays in the field, too. So, you know, sometimes you're lucky, sometimes you're not so lucky. The Nats were lacking in some luck on Saturday night. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So with the Nats pitching, uh, we can begin with Josh Rogers, then we'll get to what happened with Finnegan and the bullpen. So, you know, Rodgers is out there on Saturday night. And like you said, initially, I mean, it looked like this could be ugly. He did not look great. The first two innings of the game took like an hour of actual real time. Like the game was slow and plodding and Rodgers' pitch count was up there. He, in the bottom of the second, gives up two runs, six pitch walk at Jake Marisnik, one out RBI double by Andrew Knapp. By the way, I wanted to bring this up. So the one-out ribby double by Knapp to left field to tie the game at one in that two-run Pirates second. Heading for third, Marisnik. He's going to try and score. Escobar's throw to the plate is not in time. Runner heading for third. In there ahead of the throw. I thought a better throw by Alcides Escobar to home might have gotten Marisnik out at the plate. I have to say this. I don't think Escobar's defense has been very good so far this season. There have been a number of grounders that have gotten by him that you say to yourself, man, a different shortstop maybe could have gotten to that. He has not gotten to those. You see this moment on Saturday night where the throw, for whatever reason, wasn't there in time. I don't know. He does not seem right defensively to me so far this season. And then Rodgers gave up a one-out RBI single 
to Cole Tucker. He does end up going for four and a third innings, gives up six hits, a double, and five singles, throws 76 pitches. So it could have been worse, but it obviously wasn't great for Rodgers. Yeah. First on Escobar, I agree. You know, he had that one great relay against the Mets that made all the highlights. But since then, some shaky moments. And I agree on that play tonight. I'm watching it from high up in the press box. As the third base coach is waving him around, I'm thinking, oh, they've got him. And then it was not a very good relay to the plate. It probably, you know, didn't even require a great throw. I think it just required a decent throw. They would have had him. And then it also let, uh, I think, the trailing runner, yeah, Nap wound up a third on that. So it really not good on that one. As far as Rodgers goes, the walks, you know, a walk in the first, a walk in the second, he was really down on himself, even more so than I thought he would be because, you know, the final line isn't that bad for him. But he really did not think he pitched well. He said, Two walks is terrible for me. I can't I can't give up free bases, and, uh, and I know that. So uh, giving up those walks are no good. Kind of an admission from him that he doesn't have the stuff to be able to get away with that. Like, he's got to make the hitters earn their way on. He can't just give them free passes. You know, you would find plenty of other starting pitchers who aren't going to be terribly disappointed to walk two batters over the course of an outing. And he was really upset at himself for that. But to his credit, the third and the fourth, he gets through those two innings on 19 pitches. And it looks like, okay, he's got something figured out here. He might be able to get through this thing. And then it just didn't happen in the fifth. And like I said, I think against the lineup a third time, Davey didn't want to take his chances. But, you know, this is kind of an important start for him. It's the second one after the really good one in Atlanta. Anibal Sanchez has started throwing again. He's not going to be back anytime soon. He needs to build his arm up again. They're probably going to slow play this things for obvious reasons, have him make some minor league rehab starts and all that. But they sent Josh Rogers down the last day of spring training because they didn't think he was one of their five best. And so when you're in that position, every start you make is kind of a referendum on your ability to be in the rotation here in the big leagues. I don't think he's going away anytime soon. I mean, they need somebody here the next time around, but you kind of got your one out of the way. If he has another shaky one, now we're starting to ask those questions. So I think more than some of the others in the rotation, there should be some pressure on him to do better than what he showed in this game tonight. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky, right? Because we've seen Joanna Doan struggle so far. So you would think if anyone is on the cusp of being removed from the rotation, it would be a Doan. But if a Doan pitches well in his next outing and Rodgers does not, then maybe something like that ends up changing. You know, it's funny with the Nats bullpen on Saturday night because the truth is three of the four guys who pitched did well. And this, in a lot of ways, you could say was another overall good outing for the pen. But of course, you don't feel like saying that because the guy who was bad ended up being really bad. Uh, Steve Ciszek came into the game in the bottom of the fifth, runners on first and second, one out, game tied at two, did give up a one-out opposite field RBI single to the first battery face, Michael Chavis, but then recorded two straight outs to get out of the inning. Ciszek then tossed a perfect bottom of the sixth. Victor Arano came into the game, perfect bottom of the seventh with two strikeouts. Then came Kyle Finnegan, and he struggled. Bottom of the eighth inning, gives up three runs, two earned, gets just two outs, gives up a first pitch, leadoff triple to Chavis, issues a nine-pitch walk of Yoshi Sutsugo. Boy, I'd love to know the percentage of the time that a Nats reliever comes into a game, issues a walk, and then ends up doing well. It seems like if the guy struggles, the walk is like the flashing neon sign that problems are coming. He then gave up an RBI single, 
to Diego Castillo. By the way, on another Escobar defensive play, the Castillo single comes in against a drawn in infield. So I know this wasn't easy for all CDs, but it's a backhanded stab that could have been made. He did not make it. So another, to me, shaky moment for Escobar defensively. Then Finnegan gives up a one-out opposite field single to Jake Marisnik to load the bases. And then comes kind of a whacked-out play. Two-run score on a one-out force-out off a grounder by Andrew Knapp. Cesar Hernandez is uh, charged with a throwing error and throwing to first. You know, Kevin Franzen talked about this on the Madison telecast. He really felt like Michael Franco, who caught the grounder, should have thrown home instead of to Hernandez at second base. Now, I don't know that that excuses the Hernandez error, but I thought that was an interesting point by Franzen. So Finnegan struggled. Hunter Harvey, though, comes into the game. Bases loaded, two outs, strikes out Cole Tucker on five pitches. So Ciszek, Arano, and Harvey were good. Finnegan, unfortunately, was not. Yeah, he was not, but I do want to talk about the defense that in because it was pretty bad. And there's another play on top. I agree with everything you just said there. There's another play on top of it, and that's on the leadoff triple by Chavis. And that was Yadiel Hernandez in left field, not really going hard after the ball in the corner, and then made a little bit of a, just a casual lollipop throw into the cutoff man. And Chavis was going to stop at second until he saw that, and then he took off for third. Gets credit for a triple, but that was a play that did not sit well in the dugout. Davey Martinez actually said afterwards. I brought him in the office. I already talked to him about it, and I told him it can't happen. You know, it's a big moment right there, so he was upset about it, so you, you won't see it again. And you got to realize that Yadiel didn't start this game. He comes in to pinch hit for Robles late, and now you have that decision. Okay, you keep him in the game in left field. You're now sacrificing some defense to keep his bat in the lineup. We thought maybe there's a chance, especially if they come back to tie the game or take the lead, that Donovan Casey could make his major league debut a better defensive outfielder. Instead, Yadiel goes into left, and that did hurt them, him being out there. And I thought it was interesting that Davey made a real point to mention that one and even call him into his office to discuss it. And then on the Franco play, I agree. Watching it live, my first thought is just get the out at the plate. In that situation, that was a tough 5-4-3 to try to turn. I know Hernandez kind of botched it and the air goes to him, but Franco is charging in to get the ball. It's a tough across-the-body throw to second. Yeah, if you pull it off, you're out of the inning, but in that spot, I kind of feel like you have a chance to get the guaranteed out at the plate, keep the deficit where it is, and just try to get one more out and get out of the inning, and instead two-run score. That really changed the complexion of the ninth inning for the Nats when they come up to bat. Instead of it being 4-2, it's now 6-2. So I agree. I think in that case, it's just situational awareness. Understand where's the most important out in this situation. You don't have to try to be the hero in turn two. Get the easy out at the plate and then move on to the next batter. Yeah, it's interesting that Davey was really upset with Yadiel because watching the game, it did seem like Yadiel was moving in slow motion in left field. But, you know, I know sometimes like when you watch a game on TV, things can appear different than they are in reality. But apparently that was not the case. And, you know, I got to say, we've seen a little bit of spunk from Davey here lately. He talked about being frustrated with the bullpen a few pressers ago. He, I don't want to say put Eric Fetty on blast after his last outing, but he was kind of upfront about, hey, you know, Fetty can do better than what we saw. And now he's calling Yadiel into his office on Saturday night. So Davey, he's kind of feeling himself here in season number five as Nats manager. I like it. You know, it's not all smiles and camels with Davey. He's, uh, he's showing some oof with how he's handling things. Well, and I think there's an understanding like, yes, they all know the position this team is in, but that doesn't mean that they're just roll over for anything. And especially early in this season, you're playing another team that would be considered probably the same class as you in a game that's very winnable. Those hashtag little things make a difference. 
And, you know, if they get beat because the other team is far superior to them or out hits them, out pitches them, I think he can live with that. But when he knows that his guys are not doing as well as they're capable of, I think he's going to call them out for it. And I agree. I think it's an interesting and maybe even a good sign to see him show that not just behind the scenes, because I think we've always known that he does say and do things behind the scenes that he doesn't necessarily share with us in public, but to also be willing now to share that publicly. I think it's an interesting sign and probably a sign of his security and comfort level in knowing what he's being asked to do right now and understanding that, you know, his job isn't really on the line right now. He's not going to be judged on wins and losses this year, so he might feel a little more emboldened to speak out a little more like that publicly. It's a funny deal with Davey because, like I said, this is season five. This is poised to be a fourth disappointing season in five years, right? 18 was a disappointment. It was a winning season, but the Nats were a disappointment. 20, the Nats were bad. 21, the Nats were bad. 22, we all anticipate the Nats being bad. The only one good season was, of course, a glorious season, a World Series winning season. I'd love to know, though, how often in baseball history a manager, four disappointing seasons in five years, and yet nobody considers his job to be on the line. And by the way, nor should his job be on the line. I don't think any reasonable person would say that it should be on the line, but this really is a peculiar circumstance. I've been trying to think of like a a comp for this, another situation like this. It's hard to see it. I mean, normally four disappointing seasons in five years, you're out. With Davey, he's here and he's probably not going anywhere anytime soon. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Maybe Ned Yost with the Royals was in a little bit of a similar situation, although he got to a World Series and then won it the next year. So there were two very successful seasons for him. But it is funny what that ring will buy you. (laughs) You know, anytime anybody wants to question what you're doing, just pull that ring out of the box, show it to everybody. It goes a long way. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I mean, you never say never. You never know what might be going on behind the scenes or how a season could spiral out of control. But it would, I think, be a really shocking thing if things turn so much south this year that we were talking about Davies job security a year from now. You know, maybe a little different story. But right now, no, I don't think anybody is uh, believing that this team's record or performance is a reflection of Davey. Yeah, I mean, normally a rebuilding team, the way it works, and the team never admits to this, but the manager who takes you through the lumps of the rebuild gets fired before the fruits of the rebuild are bared. You know, like it's that classic thing of you have an Alan Trammell and then you whack him and you bring in Jim Leland, you know, or in the Nats case, right, you have a Manny Acta, Jim Riggleman, and then Davey Johnson comes on board. Because Davey has won a world championship, I don't think that the Nats are viewing him that way. Now, like you just said, it may ultimately play out that way. I mean, you know, he's not going to be here forever. And if the rebuild takes longer than it should, then maybe Davey starts to take some heat for that. But it is a very unique situation, the predicament that he finds himself in. One more thing on the defense. You know, we've joked about this, but when you have older players, you will have moments where guys look old in the field. I mean, Yadiel Hernandez is new to Major League Baseball, relatively speaking, but age 34 season. Alcides Escobar, age 35 season. I mean, to me, Escobar has looked old in the field so far this year. So that is a chance you take when you have all these mid-30s guys out there. You can have guys kind of slow playing it or not playing maybe as with as much energy and spunk as uh, you perhaps want. Yeah, it's a fair point. The trade-off, you're, what you're hoping for is that maybe they lose a step, but that they're going to be a little wiser, a little smarter from their experience, although that hasn't always necessarily been the case with them. I guess the good news is we haven't seen Nelson Cruz in the field yet. No, <laughs> please no. <laughs> please no. 
He takes grounders at first base every day, just in case. Yeah, that's. I don't think that's something any of us need to see, all right? I'd rather uh, have Alex Avila back at second base before we have Nelson <laughs> nah, Cruz in the field. Let's not get crazy here. <laughs> All right. Well, it was not a great night for the Nats on Saturday night, but we wanted to try to leave you on an up note. So we've been getting a lot of submissions and they've all been great tales of people's first major league games and what it was like being at your first game. And of course, that's such a special thing, especially it feels like in the sport of baseball more so than in other sports. And so we said, instead of asking everyone to do it and us not doing it, why don't we participate in the exercise as well? And it actually works out well because I know for you, Mark, your first game has something to do with what we've been witnessing here with the Nats lately. It has a lot to do actually with this house. So for those who don't know my background, I was born here in Pittsburgh. My family is all from here originally. Now we moved to Phoenix when I was real young. I was only two years old, but uh, I grew up a a fan of the Pirates and the the Steelers and the Penguins because we didn't have anyone yet in Phoenix. So my first games were actually spring training games, Cactus League games. We'd go every year. We'd see the Cubs, Giants, A's, whoever it was. But my first actual major league regular season game came here in Pittsburgh during a family trip. And uh, the date is August 1st, 1984. It's at Three River Stadium, which is right in between PNC Park and Heinz Field. It's now a parking lot. It was the multi-purpose stadium for both teams. I was really excited to see them play. So I was almost eight years old, a couple of weeks away from turning eight. And who did the Pirates play on that night? The Montreal Expos, who would become the Washington Nationals. Of course, had no idea at age eight I would know that. Who played first base for the Expos that night? A guy named Pete Rose. Do you remember Pete Rose as a Montreal Expo? Not a lot of people do. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So he was there for only part of that season. He wound up getting traded back to the Reds later that month. I'm just looking at the box score here on Baseball Reference. This is the best thing about this. You can go and find every detail about the games that you went to as a kid. Their lineup, Expo's lineup was legit. Tim Raines, Pete Rose, Andre Dawson, Gary Carter, Tim Wallach, your top five. That's three Hall of Famers, another guy who would be in the Hall of Fame if not for the gambling, and Tim Wallach was the franchise leader in a lot of categories until Ryan Zimmerman actually broke that. Uh, and yet, the Pirates shut them out that night for nothing. I remember Lee Lacey hitting a home run and um, just a really well-played game by what was a bad Pirates team back then. Now, in my mind, I remember thinking, I'm sitting on the first baseline with my parents. I remember the you know, big Three River Stadium. Oh, this is a big crowd. So I looked it up. The attendance that night, 8,729. You want to know what the attendance was here tonight? On a Saturday night against the Nationals, 8,676, actually smaller than it was on that night in 1984. Wow. Well, the city of Pittsburgh is a lot different today than it was in 1984. I know for uh, a lot of different reasons. My wife and her family are from Pittsburgh. So I've actually been to PNC multiple times. PNC is gorgeous. Fantastic. The Pirates as a franchise are a mess, but the uh, the ballpark, they nailed it with that back in 2001. That's really cool. My story is this. So I'm born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area, but both of my parents are from New York. And so we used to go to New York a lot when I was a kid to visit my grandparents. And so my first game was actually a Mets game, April 25th, 1987, Mets Cardinals at Shea Stadium. It was a 3-2 Mets loss. Terry Leach was the Mets starting pitcher. And there are a few things that will always stick with me. Number one, it was freezing cold that day and they were selling ice cold beer 
And I kept laughing that they were selling ice cold beer on a day on which it was so cold. So I don't know when you're, I was, this is 87, so I was 70 years old. So when you're seven, you know, the quirkiest things will stand out to you. Number two, for anyone who has ever been to Shea Stadium, it was right near LaGuardia Airport. And so you constantly, and when I say constantly, I mean constantly hear and see planes flying over the stadium. The frequency with which you have planes above you during a game at Shea, I cannot overstate. It is amazing. And so like that is like just embedded in your mind, like constantly hearing airplanes fly over. Third thing is, so this is April of 87. This is just a few months after the Mets won the 86 World Series. You know, I didn't grow up with a baseball team in the immediate D.C. area. So to be in New York, which is, you know, a baseball crazed place to begin with, off that championship, I still remember that 86 Mets team was such a big deal. It's, it really has become, it's almost like what the 85 Bears are in the NFL. It's like this legendary team for some very bad reasons, let's be honest, but also for some very good reasons because that 86 postseason. I think the 86 postseason is the best postseason ever. That was incredible with Red Sox, Angels, and the ALCS, Mets, Astros, NLCS, and then the epic World Series with the Mets and the Red Sox. And so seeing and hearing people still talk about what had happened in 86 and it constantly be referenced on the radio that day and on television at the time, that really jumped out. And it really was like, wow, this is what a baseball city can be. And, you know, obviously we now have a baseball team here, but it was a really cool thing. And I guess the last thing is, and this is something that still hits me, when you go to a ballpark and you see the stadium live and in living color and like the grass and the players, like it really is amazing. You know, like I know that sounds like something a kid would say, but it really is something, I guess, especially when you are a kid, it like slaps you in the face what this all looks like in person off you having just seen it on television all those times. And I remember that feeling. And to this day, when I go to a game, like it still does stand out as a really cool thing. These ballparks really are beautiful and these fields are beautiful. And to watch it in person really is a good experience. Yeah, especially it's that walk through the tunnel, especially the older stadiums where you couldn't see the field from the concourse. And all of a sudden you come out and there it is all out in front of you. And what's so funny is you talk about how beautiful it all is. I think we can both admit that Shea Stadium and Three River Stadium are two of probably the ugliest stadiums of all time. And yet you still had that feeling when you walk in there, especially as a kid. Having been to Shea Stadium, I can tell you the same thing. The airplanes is ridiculous. It happens at City Field, which is right across the street from where Shea was. But for some reason, I feel like it's not as loud. Maybe the concrete, whatever it was about Shea, it did make it louder. I don't know if you have your game up in front of you. The other point I was going to make, because I know you'll love this, the time of game on uh, my Pirates game in 1984, two hours and nine minutes. A little different than nowadays. I do have the box score, two hours, 39 minutes for my game. I mean, that was, look, in the 80s, you, you look at all these box scores, it's two hours and change. You know, three hours was like, that's a marathon. Now you're lucky if a game is played in three hours. So it is a different world. No question about that. So there you go. Our tales of our experiences, the first experiences at Major League Games. Uh, You keep your tales coming. You can email us uh, at natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can write us your stories in written form, or you can uh, send us a voice memo with you saying your story and we'll play it on the podcast. You can also email the podcast if you'd like to sponsor the Nats Chat Podcast. Reach out to Tim Shovers. Again, the address is natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us as well at Nats underscore chat. Nats Chat is on the radio on Sunday mornings. 
Don't forget Sunday mornings at 9 on 1061 ESPN in Richmond and Sunday mornings at 9 on Sports Radio 96.5 FM and 8.50 AM in the Hampton Roads area. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. Off the floor, off the scoreboard, off the bank board, no rim. Second rafter, off the floor, nothing but net. Through the window, off the wall, nothing but net. What you want is what you get in the titles today. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.